Hello, and welcome back to A Hunger for Wholeness, a podcast from the Center for Christogenesis. My name is Julian Langford, and I am the producer of this podcast. It's great to be with you again. Today, our hosts, Ilya Delio and Robert Castro, sit down with Stephen Dick, who is an American astronomer, author, historian of science, most noted for his work in the field of astrobiology. He's kind of a big deal. He's served as the chief historian of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration from 2003 to 2009, and as the Bloomberg NASA Library of Congress Chair in Astrobiology from 2013 to 2014. Before that, he spent time as an astronomer and historian of science at the United States Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. from 1979 to 2003. And in this episode, Dr. Stephen Dix sits down and has a discussion with our hosts about the polarity of worlds, cosmotheology and astrobiology, and that he's explored the history of extraterrestrial life. This is a really exciting and interesting interview with a really notable scientist. So sit back, relax, and enjoy part one of a two-part interview with Ilya Delio, Robert E. Castro, and astrobiologist, Dr. Stephen Dick. Well, you know, maybe my first question, and I know Robert, I've asked him to bring his wisdom here. I would just like to know how you got involved in the field of astrobiology and astronomy and this fascinating life of the heavens. Well, it goes back to my childhood when I lived on a farm in southern Indiana, and all you had to do was look up at the sky and be inspired and wonder what all those uh, stars were and maybe if there were planets out there that could be inhabited. So it started for me at a very early age. And then I, uh, in college at Indiana University, majored in um, astrophysics, got a bachelor's in astrophysics, but then took a little bit of a fork in the road and um, went into the history and philosophy of science program, because I always wondered how we got to know what we, what we knew. And that's what history of science did. Already in graduate school, you know, when it came time to uh, worry about what my dissertation should be, I had been interested in the extraterrestrial life debate. And so I proposed to do a dissertation on the history of that debate. And uh, they quickly said that, well, there are a couple of problems with that. One is that it's not science. This is back in the 1970s. And the second is that it doesn't have any history worth writing. <laughs> so I actually had to uh, switch advisors to a medievalist who knew that there was a, an ancient plurality of worlds, as it was called, plurality of worlds tradition, going back at least to, to Aristotle. And that this had been a debate and discussion in the Middle Ages when you had all the commentaries on Aristotle by Aquinas and Occam and and all of these people, because Aristotle believed there was only a single world in terms of a world being a cosmos. Of course, the, the Christians like Aquinas said, well, with God's omnipotence, if he wanted to create a world, other worlds, of course, he could have. And uh, a lot of them concluded that he hadn't, because that raises all kinds of questions, such as the incarnation and redemption, and what are all the implications for Christianity if there are other worlds. So that debate goes way back to the Middle Ages. So the medievalist on the faculty there at, in history of science department was happy to take me on because he knew there was a tradition to that. Mm. So I had proposed to write that entire history, starting with the ancient Greeks and going up to the present. And uh, after four years, I'd only gotten to the middle of the 18th century. So <laughs> wow. 
that uh, dissertation, which was published by Cambridge, was the extraterrestrial life debate from Democritus to Kant. I only got to Kant. Oh, interesting. On that part. And uh, yeah. the subsequent books covered the rest of it. But it uh, turns out it has a fascinating history, and it's very much connected to science as it was understood at the time. Yeah, you're right. Actually, I, I wrote a paper a long time ago on Bonaventure, or the question of the eternity of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came across some of what you're talking about among the medievalists. Thomas actually held to a plurality of worlds, you know, theoretically, you know, philosophically, there was no issue. Bonaventure actually rejected it. And it had to do with the um, God's love for this creation and the uniqueness of this creation. And so, you know, the Franciscans, they're very earthy people. So (laughs) nothing too heady. So anyway, that's how I got I got started on it, and it's just developed since then. Yes, and since then, you have developed some very original ideas. What do you think is your most important original idea in the area of cosmotheology yeah. or just cosmological life? Well, my major contribution has been uh, to write the history of the whole extraterrestrial life debate, starting with those ancient Greeks and coming up to the present. And that's where you see all of these ideas, including the theological implications. One of the things I like about the extraterrestrial life debate all the way up to the present when it's called astrobiology is that you can talk about almost anything. You can talk about the science, the chemistry, the biology, the astronomy. You can talk about the implications, you know, the theology, the philosophy. You can talk about policy, whether we should be searching for extraterrestrial intelligence whether we could be sending messages and what the implications of that might be and who speaks for Earth if we do that. There are all of these questions arise, but one of them for me was in the area of theology because all of these questions about life raised those issues. And so my religious background, I was raised as, as a Catholic. And in fact, my sister is a Benedictine nun. But it's one of these cases where siblings sort of uh, (laughs) go go in different directions. And for me, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, I joined the, uh, I was actually a founding member of the Unitarian Universalist in my local community here in Virginia. And Unitarian Universalists, you know, have an independent search for meaning, the inherent dignity and worth of, of every human being. And so they also encourage you to build your own theology. So uh, I thought, okay. And um, what I have done is built my own theology based on what we know about science. And hmm. that's what I call cosmotheology. Hmm. And, uh, this is just one kind of flavor of the broader field, which has developed over the last couple of decades, of what's called astrotheology. Ted Peters and others have written uh, books on this. There are at least a half a dozen books that I know of that have been written about astrotheology. Many of them focus on what the implications are for Christianity, like the incarnation and redemption. I think more than half of Ted Peters' volume, which is called Astrotheology, deals with the back and forth about what are the implications for the doctrines of uh, incarnation and redemption. And uh, we, can, we can talk more about that. But anyway, what I, my flavor is what's called cosmotheology, and I've developed some principles of cosmotheology that we can talk about more if you'd like. Yes. Yeah, I definitely want to hear more. Robert, what questions do you bring in the beginning here? Well, it's interesting because uh, obviously the area of astronomy has exploded since the Hubble telescope in the 20th century. But then in the 1950s, we actually have people who believe that extraterrestrial life has landed here on Earth. (laughs) That's right. 
And I'm wondering in, in your estimation, Steve, is the evidence compelling for extraterrestrial life as we know it now or not so much? Well, it depends which scenario you're talking about. I think the evidence or the, not necessarily the evidence, we have to say that this is not proven that, that uh, there is any, any life beyond the earth. And uh, certainly not proven that they've landed on the earth. I mean, I know the recent debates about the uh, Air Force and the uh, intelligence agencies showing the footage that is unexplained, but not necessarily extraterrestrials. I've written, you know, chapters about the whole UFO debate. And the bottom line on that is that, you know, 97% of the sightings can be explained, but the question is what to do with the other 3%. There might be really be something interesting in there. And I've, I've always said that should be explored. Uh, you know, it, it could be a sociological phenomenon, a, a psychological phenomenon, some other physical phenomenon. You don't have to jump to what's called the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which a lot of people do. So I don't think the evidence for that is compelling, but I am in favor of further study, which is what people like, uh, you know, this Harvard astronomer, Abby Loeb, has been doing. He has a project now called Project Galileo, which is uh, looking at, at the evidence. And that's been the really big breakthrough, I think, in the last few years, is that scientists used to poo-poo all uh, this talk about UFOs, but now some of them are seriously considering at least looking at the evidence, which I think is good. I think it's been an abrogation of their scientific duty just to ignore these things. But uh, looking for the signal and the noise is the thing, and that's what they're starting to do now. But the evidence, I would say, is not yet compelling. Now, astrobiology in general, which does not usually deal with UFOs, is something else. Uh, we don't have real evidence for that either, but we have reason to believe that life should be out there. And this depends, of course, on your preconceptions. You know, scientists, every scientist, well, every human being has preconceptions about everything, right? And astrobiologists have at least two preconceptions. One is the Copernican assumption that what has happened here has happened out there, that we're nothing special. We're uh, not, certainly not at the center of the universe. And uh, the second presupposition would be the Darwinian assumption that wherever life can develop, it will develop. So we know the laws of nature are uniform throughout the universe, and we now know that there are thousands of planets that have actually been confirmed and indicating that probably virtually every star that you see has planets around them. So uh, that, that's something just in the last 25 years. Uh, 25 years ago, we knew of no other planets beyond our solar system. And that's why when I raise things like astrotheology or cosmotheology, people would say, well, there's no indication at all that, but why should we change? Because we don't even know if there are planets out there, but now we do. And of course, uh, not all of them are habitable. Some of them are gas giants, very close to their stars and, you know, not likely to have life. But there are Earth-sized and even Earth-like planets that we are finding now, even from this small sample that we know of a few thousand planets. So the question is, does life develop on those? And that is what we don't know yet. And that's why NASA and other uh, scientific organizations uh, have these programs called astrobiology, uh, where they're trying to figure out, um, you know, whether there are biosignatures or even technosignatures that we can look at and make a determination whether life actually has developed. So the, the jury's still out on that, but I think it's one of the biggest questions in science that's, uh, that remains. You know, it seems to me that, I mean, this is a fascinating area, but if we could only really know something that we could 
identify with. In other words, how would we be able to communicate or acknowledge another extraterrestrial form of life if that form of life has a very different level of consciousness or a way of intelligence or a way of language or expression? In other words, we would have to find another species out there who has some common ground with it. In other words, what would be the basis for communication? Yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. And uh, people in astrobiology have tended to be rather anthropocentric. And uh, their argument is that, well, we have to look first for what we know, uh, you know, carbon-based life and perhaps something like us, although I think it's very unlikely that the intelligence out there would be like us. And uh, the question of whether or not we could even recognize it, much less communicate it, is a very real question. And the question of communication is what's called the problem of commensurability, because our minds and alien minds may not be able to uh, communicate uh, whatsoever. So, but what Frank Drake and other people, you know, who've been the leaders in the study program, Frank, unfortunately, just deceased a couple of months ago, but at age of 92, I think he was, he was the real leader in this field. But a, a lot of younger people have entered, entered also. But what they would say is that we have to start with what we know. So let's, uh, and in fact, the whole SETI Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence program began when radio telescopes got big enough in the early 1960s to get signals, you know, from a possible civilization out there. And uh, the question then would be, well, what frequency are they, <laughs> would they be sending on and all, all these sorts of things. And so, you know, SETI has had, uh, as a whole, has had a lot of ups and downs, not very much funding, although the, in the last few years, there's been uh, some private funding, which is significant. And so uh, there's a new generation now that are trying various techniques for, for searching and, and even sending messages. This is another thing which is very controversial, not just SETI, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, but METI, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. And this is being done. Texting them? <laughs> well, that's the question. What do you, how do you communicate, right? Uh, but there's actually an organization, and I was on the board for a while, of uh, the Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence Organization, which, you know, has the, as its main purpose to uh, send messages. And then the question, of course, is what should the message be? And even should we really be doing this? And there's some very uh, vociferous people who say we should not be doing this. Stephen Hawking was one of them saying that uh, we should reveal where we are because it could be very dangerous. And if you look at history, you know, culture contacts throughout history, like in the age of discovery, Indians and the, the Aztec or, or the Incas didn't end very well. Hmm. That's not a particularly good argument because, first of all, we're not talking about physical contact here unless you're talking about UFOs, which were not in astrobiology in general. Uh, you're talking about long-distance communication. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been science fiction novels written about that too, though. Uh, the, one of them comes to mind is the three-body problem written by Shishin Lu, the, the Chinese uh, mm. writer who, uh, you know, a Medi program sends a signal and, you know, years later, because this does take years for the receipt traveling at the speed of light, years later, uh, the invasion begins. So <laughs> that's, that's, one, that's what people like Hawking are worried about. And of course, we have no way of knowing what extraterrestrials would be like, although I think there are some arguments that uh, they could be altruistic in the same way uh, that we are, but you can also argue 
uh, on the other side is I'd say there's probably a 50-50 chance that they're good or bad. <laughs> so, but my bottom line argument on, on Medi is that we can't sort of cower here and be afraid of what's out in the universe. You know, we just can't, maybe curiosity will kill the cat, but we can't, we can't stifle our curiosity. So I think we have to do this. And um, maybe it's not a, not a good idea for governments to be sending messages like China or Russia, because who knows what propaganda they would be sending. But for an organization of scholars to get together, such as this many organization, I think is okay. Although they have to, uh, you know, consider the implications also, which they they often do. Yeah, I personally think it's a very exciting. There are many reasons why I would support the search for extraterrestrial life, it philosophically and theologically. But I mean, and just for the sheer adventure of discovery, I think that's what the human mind does. It wants to always press forth the frontiers of knowledge, like. And, and those frontiers are, in a sense, infinite. You know, we can't, we can't ever exhaust them. But I also think, and I wonder, if cosmological life follows like the pattern of biological life. In other words, if we emerge by way of evolution, you know, 140,000 years ago or 3 million years ago or whatever, we would never have imagined that we'd be here. And so there is this kind of, unfolding and emergent process of complexity. I wonder if something like that goes on cosmologically so that, you know, maybe the extraterrestrials are not that, maybe there's an intermediary extraterrestrial out there who's something, you know, of a human on a different level or a higher level of emerging complex life of intelligence. We shouldn't limit ourselves. And, I, and there's several things I hear. Oh, we have so many problems here on Earth. Why are we spending money to look in space? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, looking in space is not going to solve the problems here on Earth. And it doesn't mean that we're going to resolve these problems. Because if we can expand what we are, we might be able to get a better sense of what we are here on Earth. You know, I think part of this whole endeavor is just what are we humans? What what are we? Are we the last line here? I doubt it. You know, so that's very, very interesting. And yeah, let me say a word about that. Of course, we have we know quite a bit about cosmic evolution. The universe is not only vast in space, it's also vast in time. And we know it's about 13.8 billion years old. And that cosmic evolution has been going on. The Earth is only four and a half billion years old, and it's entirely possible that intelligence has developed even before the Earth was formed. So we do need to think non-anthropocentrically, and uh, this is another idea that I've written on, which is that it's very possible that uh, we live not in a biological universe, what I call the biological universe, but a post-biological universe. And by that, I mean that it's entirely possible that the intelligences out there are artificial intelligence. Because if you look at cultural evolution on Earth, which is all a part of cosmic evolution, it's starting to look like we are developing in many ways artificial intelligence and even general artificial intelligence. And some people have argued that in a generation or two, they may be smarter than us. And in that case, you know, the science fiction scenarios start to come up. Do they take over? I don't know. But the point is that out there in outer space, uh, you've got billions of years of evolution that might have occurred or that has occurred. And uh, I think it's it's likely that uh, they would be um, 
artificial intelligence, and therefore that we live in a post-biological universe. So that's a whole a whole yeah. of problems. And how do you communicate with, with that? <laughs> Robert, what's interesting about what you just said, Steve, particularly with artificial intelligence, biotechnology, nanotechnology, and our own evolutionary culture, culture of evolution, it's very difficult for us even to predict where that's going. So that's right. it's doubly difficult to predict the amplification of intelligence on other planets, et cetera. That's right. Uh, the argument that I make, though, is that the improvement of intelligence sort of supersedes all those other things. You know, you, you don't know where nanotechnology is going or genetic engineering or whatever, but improving your intelligence, you know, is, is kind of an overarching thing. And, and I argue that any species that can improve its intelligence will improve its intelligence for Darwinian reasons will be left behind. So in the long term, over millions or billions of years, <laughs> I think that, you know, the improvement of intelligence is an overarching theme. Hmm. Now, Steve, going back to your thesis, would you say then that consciousness, you know, consciousness is that fundamental field stuff, whatever consciousness is, because no one really knows. Right. But would you see that then as existing ad infinitum, um, you know, going back to consciousness intelligence preceding us, that's very, very interesting. And then we, in a sense, gradually entering into that, which has already existed. And maybe this is, you're giving me some new ideas here. Maybe maybe us becoming intelligent is, is coming into what is already out there, you know, rather than something very new for us. It's new for us as a biological species, right. but maybe it's not that new in the larger spheres of the cosmos. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. And you can talk about this on several levels. I mean, at the, uh, you know, the cosmic evolution level, you couldn't have life like us or biological life until you had uh, stars and planets and a place where life could evolve. And that could have happened, people have done the calculations on this, that could have happened as early as seven or eight billion years ago, well before the Earth was formed. So life and intelligence could have been around, you know, seven or eight billion years ago already. And who knows how that's developed. Now, Very interesting. Yeah. At another level, you know, there are people like the process theologians or the mm -hmm. panpsychists who say that maybe you don't have this division between life and matter, maybe matter itself is alive, which I've never quite been able to wrap my head around. But if that's the case, almost from the beginning, you would have had at least the potentiality uh, for life, if not life itself. But it seems to me like you would have to uh, kind of redefine what you mean by, by life. <laughs> yes. that philosophical tact. Yeah, that's another very interesting thing. You know, as you're talking, I know a lot of people ask us on these podcasts, so what does this mean for me, you know, in my everyday life, if I go to Giant or Wegmans? I mean, and yet, you know, isn't this really, we're talking about what are we really, we humans in this universe? It's very, it's deeply philosophical and it's pretty awesome. You know, I think of the psalmist, when I look at the stars in the heavens, which you have made, who are we? that you keep us in mind. I do want to move, uh, get to that question of cosmotheology, but I also want to let Robert, if he has any more questions, because he, he's a very uh, wise and insightful person on this stuff of religion and science. So 
Sure. Well, that seems like a natural segue, too, because that, that would be my interest. And I already see, uh, Steve, based upon what you're saying, many similarities between cosmotheology and a process theology. And I'm wondering, is there any need for the notion of the supernatural in this system? Or does the supernatural take a new face entirely? Well, not for me. One of the um, basic principles, maybe the basic principles of cosmotheology is that it's a naturalistic philosophy, a naturalistic theology. And uh, that's simply because it's based on science. And, you know, supernaturalism has been around for a long time. But it's, um, if you stop and think about it, it's a pretty radical idea. And uh, the, the people who espouse supernaturalism, I think, uh, need to defend that not me defending naturalism. <laughs> so I don't see the need for the supernatural. And some people have various objections to that. Well, what about transcendence? And, you know, if you believe in God, uh, transcendence, you can't have transcendence without supernaturalism. But I would say that that's not true. All you need to do is go out and look at the night sky and I get a transcendent sort of reverent kind of feeling. Uh, and so you don't need supernaturalism. And even the process some of the process philosophers like David Ray Griffin have written books on this subject. Uh, one of his is called Reenchantment Without Supernaturalism. So this has been a, an area that's you know, been gone over in quite some detail, but it's not one that's really caught on, I would say, except among the religious naturalists, which is a, a significant movement, but it's a tiny movement compared to the, the normal paradigmatic religions you know, that we talk about, the Abrahamic religions and the other religions that believe in a supernatural God. So um, I think the whole idea of developing a cosmotheology was to do it in terms of what we now know, because and I know Ilya has written about this in her books, that Christianity, for example, was and the other major religions were developed at a time when we had a geocentric worldview. And they've never really gotten beyond that, you know. And so uh, the question is, how can we develop a theology that takes into account what we now know about the universe? That's what cosmotheology is. And astrotheology is, is broader in the sense that you may still maintain, you know, Christianity and these other religions and ask what the implications for those religions might be, like the implications for incarnation and redemption. And uh, there are some really interesting arguments about that, you know, whether if incarnation happens on other worlds, do you have to have a planet-hopping Jesus who hops to other planets every time to do a, an incarnation? Or does one incarnation here on Earth, you know, um, redeem everybody? And so those are the kinds of arguments uh, you get into. But it, that's all superseded if you just go to cosmotheology, which doesn't have a doctrine of, of incarnation and redemption. Yeah, I would agree with you, Steve. I think all of nature is super nature, right? And all of nature has this capacity for, it's very dynamic, right? It's very energy-filled. So you don't have to posit anything beyond. And even that is, it gets, it's just not true to what we know about ourselves and, and even what we know about God. We can't even talk about God from conscious, a conscious intelligence. I mean, you know, it just doesn't exist without conscious matter or matter that has some capacity to engage the thinking process. Thank you for listening to part one of this interview with Ilya Delio, Robert Castro, and Dr. Stephen Dick. 
Make sure to come back and listen to part two of this episode, which will be the episode directly following this one. This podcast is a production of the Center for Christogenesis, and we work in friendly partnership with the wonderful folks at the Fetzer Institute. My name is Jillian Langford, and I am the producer of this podcast. Kate Christensen is our marketing and social media expert. Gregory Hansel helped to conceive this idea, and Robert Nicastro helps with our scheduling of speakers and events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram as Hunger for Wholeness, and you can also become a donor and supporter of this podcast on Patreon.com. And if you absolutely want to learn more about extraterrestrial life and the future of God and space and science, you can actually register for our conference. The Center for Christogenesis is hosting our annual conference on February 3 through 5, and Dr. Stephen Dick will be there as one of our speakers. So head to Christogenesis.org and register today. Until next time, this has been A Hunger for Wholeness.